Hello and welcome. You found the Social Work Podcast. My name is Jonathan Singer, and I'll be your host as we explore all things social work. In today's podcast, I speak with Dr. Lambert McGuire about social networks. Dr. McGuire and I discuss the development of his interest in the topic, as well as some historical context for understanding social networks. We discuss the theoretical assumptions and differential applications of social networks in research and clinical practice. Dr. McGuire relates the traditional understanding of social networks to contemporary uses of Web 2.0 social networking sites such as MySpace.com. We ended our interview with a description of how social networks could be conceptualized throughout the lifespan. And now, on to the interview with Dr. McGuire and social networks. Dr. McGuire, thank you so much for being here. Should I call you Dr. McGuire or Bert? Bert. I'll call you Bert. Bert is good. All right. So um, tell me a little bit about how you got interested in social networks. Okay. I think my earliest work uh, in an undergraduate school, I had a lot of psychoanalytic sort of background and training. Then I spent a couple of years working with children with autism and uh, worked actually with uh, Bruno Bettelheim at the University of Chicago. And he was very psychoanalytic, very kind of long-term insight-oriented. And uh, at the time, more behaviorists were also getting into the action and sat in in some really interesting debates and discussions about from the behaviorists versus the analysts. Some of it got pretty nasty. It's kind of <laughs> interesting time to be in the field, actually. Um, and I kind of cited a little bit more of the behaviorists, but I thought there were other things involved in people getting better anyway, even besides the treatment part. I went to University of Chicago uh, for my master's in social work. I was at the Psychiatric and Psychosomatic Institute for field work, which is very psychoanalytic, and again thought that most types of therapy just weren't that effective. They're either very long-term or relatively inefficient and just didn't seem to have any great effect. And then after University of Chicago, I ended up uh, spending three years on an Indian reservation in Pine Ridge, South Dakota, worked with the uh, Sioux people. Essentially, most of what I had learned, at least as a psychotherapist sort, uh, just didn't work there and just really didn't have much effect. No, why, do, why do you think it didn't work? Uh, I think the culture is just so different. I mean, part of it was the, you know, the people weren't horribly into talking about their problems. It was just not something that that culture was too comfortable with. It became clear also just in, in my work there that people relied on each other a lot. And that the people who seemed to have the fewest problems were the people who were most tightly connected on the reservation. And one of the first Lakota words I learned was uh, teoshpe, which is the word for extended family, because I commented on this to a few of the staff people who are all Native Americans and said, you know, we seem to be seeing kind of the marginalized people even here on the reservation. I mean, we're seeing not Sioux in many cases. We're seeing Cherokee and Navajo and other tribes. And they knew right away, well, obviously that's why we're seeing them, because they don't have any family. They don't have any friends here. The people have problems here on the reservation more than the average uh, are people who are not, not Sioux. They aren't connected, no family, no friends, uh, very marginalized. And so that kind of reinforced my feeling. Uh, it wasn't so much therapy, no matter what the type of therapy, you know, what really helped, you know, both in prevention as well as in, in any type of treatment was uh, people do better if they're connected to others. If they have family and friends who are supportive and caring, uh, many of them never run into big problems. And if they do, 
the best source in most instances is their own social network. You know, going to family, talking to friends, uh, dealing with issues, getting advice, or just getting support. You know, somebody to talk to, even if nobody has an answer for them. Uh, it's it's very therapeutic. However, you wanted to find that. So. Uh, Early on, all, all my early uh, work kind of suggested that it was these social systems, social networks, and if they happened to be supportive and helpful, they were very, very therapeutic in, the, in a way that I uh, was quite impressed with, more so than what I had seen in traditional uh, psychotherapy or treatment interventions. Uh, then I, when I was at Michigan, I was fortunate in kind of pursuing this sort of area, and I got an NIMH grant that looked at social supports in, in social networks in relation to treatment outcome and community mental health, and it looked at uh, at least correlates. Uh, you know, methodologically, it wasn't the greatest study, but it was interesting. It, I looked at correlates of who really got better, and it was very clear that the people who were either married or had uh, some solid connections, uh, were employed or had kids, essentially people who had linkages uh, in which necessitated that they function, um, whereas people who uh, didn't get well, didn't respond to therapy, didn't respond to, to much and ended up uh, back in treatment, were often people who, for a variety of reasons, were uh, not connected to anyone. Uh, they didn't have family, didn't have friends. Um, Whatever types of intervention was involved didn't didn't connect them to people, and they they didn't function very well. I was wondering if you could define for us what are social networks. Well, at least usually in social work and most social science, when people talk about a social network, they're referring to some way of analyzing or understanding or describing patterns of influence among people. You know. Uh, who's connected to whom, what the linkages are, how they are connected, what these linkages do, what direction are they, in other words, are they helpful, are they harmful. Um, a lot of the earlier network analysts uh, talked about analyzing social networks with defined specific boundaries, so there were limits to it. But one of the things that's happened, I think, in more recent years with kind of web-based sites has been that they're almost limitless types of networks. They go on and on, and you can have a lot of people who influence a lot of other people. Yeah, I, I know that on MySpace, for example, I, you can have one person uh, with 17,000 people are in your social network. Right, right. And it's it interesting, though, because from a historical perspective, I, I think one of the reasons that even the term, or at least the way you analyze networks, has changed is because a lot of the early people, you know, people like Barnes and Bott and Mitchell, all the, who are mostly anthropologists, just the methodology was such that you had to kind of define a limited boundary and limited number of people. And so that, a lot of that research would be anywhere from three to 25 people, and they would do nice measures of a distance and patterns of influence among a very clearly defined set. But I think we're seeing, again, kind of some uh, different understandings, uh, or at least ways of looking at broader social networks now. Uh, and that, that's changed over some period of time. Even the understanding of the effects, I mean, the earlier research, the very earliest stuff in the mental health area, used to be pretty clear counts of how many people you knew. And that was, in fact, pretty correlated with a uh, level of psychopathology. So they always knew that schizophrenics, for instance, almost invariably only had one or two people in their social network. Um, and people who are high-functioning would have 15 or 20 or 25 or so. But now we know that it's not just the quantity, it's also the quality. So we have much methodologically much more 
rigorous ways of understanding uh, the, the quality of these networks and understanding how more precisely people help. It's not purely a function of the number of people you know, because also, frankly, a lot of networks are negative. You know, so it's not just you know, being connected to a lot of people. You know, drug addicts may have large social networks, but uh, many of the people in the social network are certainly not uh, helpful. I know that when I worked in child and adolescent services, it was very common to have a child on probation. And one of the terms of probation was that they were not to interact with what they right. called yeah. negative peers. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Um, one of the things I always do in, clinically is get people to draw up their social networks. And one of the things that often comes up is the fact that, you know, some people are helpful, they're positive, and some people are really negative. So we invariably do that, especially in drug and alcohol, other certain behaviors that you really want to, you know, minimize or distinguish altogether. You'll often uh, find that the people they associate with, uh, you know, behaviorists would say they, they kind of precede certain behaviors. So the pedophile will hang around a, a playground or hang around a school setting. So you make it very clear they are not to go to those particular sorts of areas. Um, you know, so you'd, you'd have people change their behavior uh, based on where they might meet people in a social, social network. Obviously, a person who's an alcoholic shouldn't be going into a bar um, because they relate and they interact with people who are drinking, and that's a negative influence. So, yeah, we talk a lot. It's very helpful clinically you know, to get people to understand the patterns of influence of the people with whom they interact. So it sounds like there's an understanding of social networks that might be different in research yeah. than in clinical practice. Definitely, definitely. As a researcher, there you tend to have certain preordained, predefined sets of questions uh, if it's more qualitative, you obviously have an opportunity to vary that quite a bit. But there's certain areas more narrowly that you really want to get into. As a clinician, uh, you want to keep it fairly broad-based. And the questions of, that you would ask to a, a client are uh, pretty broad. So, for instance, uh, when I'm doing clinical work, I don't ask, for instance, many depressed people initially, you know, uh, how, essentially how big is their network, how many people that they relate to, how are, how are they? Because almost any depressed person will tell you they have no friends, no family, nobody likes them, nobody cares about them. They are very isolated, which has some grain of truth because, you know, symptomatically what happens with a lot of depressed people is they, they do isolate. Or because of their symptoms, they become isolated. Same with schizophrenics and many others. But what I try to do in a clinical, uh, in clinical work is I, I do prime people, and I would never do that in research. As a researcher, I'd straightforward ask questions. But as a clinician, I would <clears throat> spend several sessions talking with them about who they interact with, who are their friends, uh, what do they talk about with this particular friend or this particular family member. Is, uh, is that person helpful? Uh, so we spend a fair amount of time talking about that. And then along about the fourth or fifth or sixth session, then I ask them to draw a very simple diagram and the typical diagram I've used that I've written up in a few books has been just basically three concentric circles with you know, the person's name in the middle and broken in usually three or four different wedges. So you have uh, one wedge is the family, one is friends, and third wedge might be everybody else or others. 
and you have a very graphic spatial representation within these three concentric circles. So you tell people to write in the closest circle who are the family members who are closest to them, and then in the wedge for uh, friends, who are the friends who are closest to them, and then who are the others who are closest to them. And it might be a therapist, it might be a social worker, clergyman, whomever. Um, but they they then will write down you know, one or two or five, ten people within the close circle, and then people a little bit more distant will be in the outer circle. So those are people that they might associate with but don't necessarily consider very close friends. And so you end up after you know several discussions uh, with a pretty clear graphic representation and picture, literally a picture, a graph anyway, of uh, exactly who they know. And it might be three people, it might be 20 people. And then you can spend some degree of time talking with them afterwards. And they almost invariably do, several sessions. Then, well, you know, tell me about this person. Do you call them or do they call you? Uh, what do you talk about? How do they help? Do you feel better after you've talked to this person? Uh, do you feel worse after you've talked to this person? And you get uh, highly varied instances. You know, some people might call their mother and after talking with their mother, they feel much better. Some might feel suicidal afterwards. So we talk, well, do you think it's a good idea to call your mother after this has happened or call uh, this guy you used to drink with? Do you think it's a good idea to talk with this person uh, if you're uh, feeling tempted to, uh, to to drink again, so it's very practical, uh, very very therapeutic. It's it, I've been surprised at how uh, very helpful this stuff is. Because also, again, the, the same depressed person who initially will tell you, you know, nobody likes them, nobody cares about them. Uh, after you've drawn this diagram, and maybe you've had, you can almost reference back to some earlier discussions, when they say, gee, when we talked initially, you know, it sounded like nobody liked you. You know, you indicated, you told me that uh, uh, nobody cared, nobody called you, but now we've, uh, you know, talked some about your friends, and it appears that uh, you've got three people who've called you three times in the last two weeks, but you didn't respond to them. You didn't call them back. So, you know, maybe we should talk a little bit about that. Uh, you've indicated to me that you feel very isolated, nobody cares, but according to this diagram, and as we've talked about the diagram of your network, it's pretty obvious that maybe you have something to do with why you're so alone. And you're telling me on the one hand that you don't want to be alone, you'd like friends, you'd like to have people to talk to, but then according to what you've just uh, indicated in this uh, network diagram, uh, you aren't following up on that. There's an inconsistency here. So let, let's try to understand that better. Do you need to do something different? Do you need to make these connections yourself? So it sounds like there are differences in the way social networks are used in research and in clinical practice. In research, it sounds like there's uh, there are many more constraints placed mm -hmm. on uh, gathering information about uh, social networks and that would make sense sure. because you don't want to bias the respondents and you want to gather that information. But then in a clinical setting, you're using it both as an assessment piece, but also you're using that then in your intervention. And so there's general, more broad questions, but there's also this sense of, okay, now that I have this information, I can really target it um, to make sure that I'm um, uh, helping this person with whatever symptomology they're, they're, they're presenting with, whether it be substance abuse or depression or things like that. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, okay. Very definitely different use of these sorts of areas. And as a researcher, you often want to go more into depth in ideas that you have. You know, if, you, know you want to find out more of their utilization of community resources, for instance, or the patterns within their marriage, for instance. Um, as a clinician, you really want to follow up on the, the direction that the client or patient is, is, is going in and, uh, and ask 
questions pertinent to their communication and, and patterns of influence with whomever they bring up. I just have to say as an aside that one of the therapeutic modalities that has gotten the most empirical support in recent years is interpersonal psychotherapy, IPT, which has as one of its foundational ideas that depression is interrelational. Yeah. Uh, and 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 so this fits right in with what you're talking oh, yeah. about about social networks and the the, the patient. I, I don't know necessarily that I've read about social networks explicitly in the literature on um, IPT, mm-hmm. uh, but it sounds like it's very interconnected with these concepts. Yeah, it, it, it's it's interesting issue. I I think. Uh, different terminologies used within the field, and it always has been. You know, even Harry Steck, Sullivan's all stuff, and you know, theories of interpersonal psychotherapy and all this. It's been around for a long time. I, um, my background actually is in group work, you know, for instance. And most of these, if you really look at kind of group work or group therapy, family therapy, family work, most of the stuff, if you you can at least understand it uh, in terms of social networks. I, again, it's all really about the patterns of influence. And group workers, family workers, all these people recognize that you really want to reinforce strong connections that individuals have with supportive other individuals within the social network. And you can do this in the context of a family, or you can do it in the context of a group or community organization. It's all kind of reinforcing strong connections with positive elements of a person's social network. And it is very therapeutic. Again, a lot of my interest came uh, out of this when I saw that it, it's, it's the connected people who do well. And in, even from a therapeutic point of view, you know, if you want to get the person to function well, get them out there in the community, get them talking to other people, get them in other relationships, get them to a job, uh, connect them. And you connect them at the highest level that they can comfortably function at, and you try to get positive uh, connections for them, and that's just infinitely more. I, I, it isn't a replacement for therapy. You know, I'm not really suggesting that, but it's, it certainly is a complement uh, to treatment. And uh, uh, I think most uh, clinicians, most social workers, psychologists, and others really need to have the network connections as, as part of their therapeutic work, uh, if not even focusing on that. And it sounds like the network. This concept of network is very closely related to or, or perhaps synonymous with the ecosystemic yeah. framework that, that social workers learn about. And I can't speak to psychologists or psychiatrists. I believe they're slightly different perspectives. Mm-hmm. But at least in social work, the emphasis really is on the person and environment. Yeah, yeah, very definitely. I think we've known for 30, 40 years or more the tremendous importance you know, of uh, getting people, for instance, out of institutions. And we've known that for a long period of time. Uh, yeah, people uh, do well if they're connected out in the community. I was wondering if you could talk to us about how social networks or the use of social networks, the understanding of social networks, might change throughout the lifespan. Yeah, they definitely do change over a person's life. Um we talk a lot about this in human behavior and social environments sort of classes. But, yeah, young kids, obviously, their social network primarily is the, the family of origin, and uh, the, that's the people that they interact with. Uh, usually right around seventh, eighth grade, the peer group becomes really very important. And there's a lot of interesting, sometimes difficult transitions as kids kind of shift away from the family network and into the peer network. 
And that, that can be a difficult time period for uh, some people. Uh, then as people get more into young adulthood, that peer group obviously maintains its uh, primacy. Uh, then if, for instance, some proportion of the population uh, gets married, for instance, it's kind of an interesting phenomenon. We often find uh, married couples have other married couples as friends, and that further gets uh, divided with kids, uh, which you'll find out soon enough. The fact (laughs) of the matter is people uh, with children often have other networks of other couples with kids who are on the same soccer team or go to the same school, the same church. And it's it really yeah, kind of an interesting phenomenon because um, people will cater and people will bond with people who have you know, other interests and other common factors, social factors, for instance. As a funny example, uh, most people really are not interested in toilet training uh, and talking about it. However, uh, young parents, uh, mothers or fathers who are going through toilet training with their kids will, oddly enough, have interesting to them discussions with other people. And they can bond around strange issues like this, which are totally uh, lacking in interest uh, to most other people. But that's the kind of phenomenon you have. People connect on the basis of, of common interests. Yeah, without digressing too much, for instance, we know very tight bonds, by the way, are made with people who have been through traumas together. So a lot of research has been done and a lot of uh, interesting things have been found about uh, people who've, uh, guys who've been in the service together and have been through combat who have nothing in common whatsoever other than the fact of having gone through a combat situation together. And even though they come from different parts of the country and different races and nationalities and everything else, uh, they'll become tight friends based on that trauma. Slightly related one, I remember running a group some years ago of uh, recently divorced people. And again, it was quite a heterogeneous group in most respects, except all of them had just gone through divorce, and they bonded very quickly. It's the kind of group where you, you don't have to say anything. You get them together and say, this is a group of recently divorced people, and they take it from there. And they're you know, very angry, tight connections, uh, close social networks. It's really fascinating. Anyway, getting back to the development sort of stuff. Um, yeah, people connect on the basis of common social issues. So, you know, young family people will have other, hang around with other young families. An interesting phenomenon also happens, you know, very high divorce rate. As people get uh, divorced, uh, you'll find that the networks get completely reconfigured. And that can be really traumatic, and I'm quite convinced, and there's some research that supports this too, that in many instances it's not the loss of the spouse. It, that can often be a good thing. Uh, for many people. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't have gotten divorced if they got along well. But it's often a loss of social network can be a problem. You know, maybe they used to get together with these two or three or four other couples. And uh, in many instances, the uh, those networks that are based previously on couples don't know how to integrate the newly divorced individual. So a lot of these individuals end up losing that network. But what usually happens is they eventually redevelop new networks uh, sometimes these are more gender-based, so a lot of women will end up with closer networks of other divorced women. And sometimes that may even be other divorced women with kids who are five or six years old or two children. These sorts of phenomena happen. And you can get really quite whole new networks uh, based on this. In some instances, if they aren't able to rebound and aren't able to develop new networks, it can be uh, really damaging, though. You, know, you be, end up with people who, who've lost their networks based on you know, divorce or death 
uh, and they don't reconfigure a network, and uh, they they have uh, some pretty tragic consequences. That often happens also, of course, with uh, much older people. As their spouse passes away, um, they end up more isolated, and it's particularly important, I think, in working with older people that you help them reconnect, because in some instances, their entire network may have been just a spouse or just the family, but their family now lives uh, elsewhere, uh, spouse passes away, and I think one of the reasons for higher rates of depression among a lot of older people is the fact of isolation, and so uh, often it's a matter of just helping people reconnect, and just following up on that also, it's, it's... I think clinicians should be paying more attention or learning more about the importance of making those connections. And it is sometimes just pretty straightforward. You start where the client is. If they have some ability or capacity, after you've done like a social network, you can say, well, how come you haven't talked with so-and-so for the last few months? Or uh, out of the social network, uh, which of these two or three people would you like to talk with more? And then you start planning that. Say, tell you what, why don't you give this person a call? Why do you meet with this person? When we get together next week, we'll talk about how that went. And uh, you you find that as people redevelop positive, strong social networks, uh, they do a whole heck of a lot better therapeutically. Speaking of um, older adults, I know that reminiscence groups is something yeah. that uh, has been talked about, and I don't know if there's empirical support for for the modality, but uh, I, I know anecdotally mm-hmm. uh, they seem to be very effective in sure. reducing isolation and, and possibly depressive symptomology. And, and I wonder, yeah. really, if yeah. it has to do with this phenomena that you're talking about of people making those social ties, of, yeah. of, of connecting with others that are in their same boat. I think so. I mean, a lot of the social ties are reinforce is strengthened by interesting social phenomenon. So as they talk about, oh, yeah, I grew up in this neighborhood, and somebody else talks about, yeah, they grew up in the same sort of neighborhood or had the same experiences, uh, the bond gets tighter. And uh, they find the more people have in common, the closer the social network is. So there's some interesting research on that sort of stuff that uh, uh, there are different types of social networks. Some of it is based on convenience, um, which is essentially some people are, are friends because they happen to live next door to somebody. That's what you call a you know, kind of connection of convenience as opposed to a, one of commitment. So a couple of people have done research on these different types of bonds and social networks of convenience versus commitment. So a network or a relationship based on commitment might be uh, a person you went to grade school with, you only talk to once or twice a year, but if there's a really big trauma, you know, if a person's spouse dies or they diagnosed with some terminal disease, uh, that's the person they will call first. So it isn't necessarily how frequently you interact with somebody. It's uh, other factors of commitment. And those are often, again, based on history, based on uh, tight social bond. There, you've, you've mentioned um, social networks and this idea of um, linkages and connecting with others. And it sounds similar to this idea of social support. Right. Yeah, I mean, they're certainly closely connected in the, uh, I guess, the major distinction, I suppose, of the social network is kind of a neutral term often used as a way of describing patterns of influence that can be positive or negative. <clears throat> Usually, however, when you talk about a, a social support system, it, it's implied that it's positive. It's, you know, it's, it's people who are helpful. Uh, it isn't a social support system if it's uh, the other alcoholics that one drinks with. Then it's you know, kind of a n- negative influence within one's social network. If it's a social support system, it's uh, for that same alcoholic individual. It would be the people who uh, may be in an AA group that they've recently joined who help them to uh, stay sober. 
Bert, I want to thank you for being here and talking with us today about social networks. Great. Thank you. I've enjoyed it very much. Uh, you've written a number of books on social networks, and so we'll put the links up to those on okay. the website. And uh, an example of the social network diagram that you were talking about before so that listeners can uh, have a visual of what it was that you were uh, referring to. Yeah, good. Yeah, I really would encourage people to look at that diagram. I think that's I, I, when I first started using it, I was surprised at how helpful it was because, again, it's just a way of very clearly graphically demonstrating what the social network is so that you aren't talking in some abstract way which people won't relate to. But if you can actually have them, I have all my students do that too in classes. And it's very simple, very straightforward. You, know, you have them draw it, then you, you follow up on a whole bunch of questions. And it's very, very helpful. That's great. Well, again, thanks so much for being here. Great. Thank you. So I'm Jonathan Singer. Thanks for being with me today for this episode of the Social Work Podcast. If you missed an episode, visit our website at socialworkpodcast.com. If you have suggestions for future podcasts, please email me at jonathan at socialworkpodcast.com. And to all the social workers out there, keep up the good work. We'll see you back here next time at the Social Work Podcast. 